0: Currently, I was supposed to be watching Hamilton, but uh, oh. I'll have to survive on the Disney Plus version. That's a tragedy. Uh, it'll it'll come eventually. I'm hoping. Yeah,
1: I'm sure. It, I'm sure it will. That's the one show that we know will survive the pandemic. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, it's gonna be that and Cats, and that's supposed those be the two shows that we get.
2: <laughs> the future of Broadway. <laughs>
0: I mean, I feel I feel like the pretentious theater nerd because I knew twenty years ago that that show is awful. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I've never seen Cats, and I decided that I would never see Cats the day that Christine told me there's no plot; it's just a collection of T. S. Eliot poems that Andrew Lloyd Webber put music to to tell Tim Rice to go fuck himself. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to see that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's actually the. Um, appropriate for the show we're going to be talking about here today because uh merrily was directed by hal prince and hal prince was supposed to direct cats or was originally approached to do it and there's like this like classic story of him being on the phone with andrew lloyd weber and him saying like andrew i don't get it like maybe it's just like a, a a uk and american thing like are these cats like representative of like the queen and no nobility and like a comment on society and class, and there was like this big pause. And Andrew Lloyd Webber says, Hal, it's about cats. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kyle, do you have a drink or anything
1: with you?
0: I have a water. That's what's <laughs> what exciting as I have it.
1: I'm finishing up the wine that we had when you came over, Christine. Oh, okay. What kind? I want to say it's a cab. I'm not sure because I basically just order a ton of wine for delivery. <laughs> Okay, And it just sits on a bar cart that gets a disturbing amount of direct sunlight. <laughs> You're supposed to, you know, put it in a closet or whatever, right. but it's New York. I don't have a closet for my clothes. How can I have a closet for wine?
0: You, you already live in a closet. You do not have another <laughs> exactly.
3: closet. Exactly. Yeah. Yesterday is time. See the pretty countryside. Merrily we roll along, roll along, bursting with dreams.
1: Welcome, everybody, to Bottomless Broadway where we talk musicals over mimosas. Today we are here with another collab with Kyle from the podcast Putting It Together. Hello, Kyle.
0: Hello, I'm so excited to be here today.
1: Thank you. Every time I use this chance to introduce Christine as though people don't know her, and I'm like, I'm here with my co host, Christine. And Christine's like, hi. <laughs> we never know what and to do there. Very uncomfortable. We <laughs> don't intro. know
0: how to, how to um, announce who are you and How did you get into this podcast?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Kyle, do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast?
0: I would love to. So putting it together is this harebrained scheme I came up with a couple of years ago to go through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. Uh, and I am two years into that project, basically. I have uh, you know, gone through a lot of his earlier work, his uh, lyrics-only shows, and have just finished off the season on Follies, which seemed for me to take forever, which kind of did. It was like seven <laughs> months because there's so many songs in that show that you can and need to talk about. And uh, I'm looking forward to jumping into a little night music here very soon.
1: First of all, really awesome name. Um, second, how many years do you think it's going to take to get through?
0: <laughs> so the I did, time? I did figure this out at one time and then have promptly forgotten the number. But I think what I originally had figured out is that it was something like six and a half years. If I didn't skip a week. Wow. Um, wow. But I've skipped some weeks. Cause I take some breaks in between seasons and then I decided to incorporate other things as well besides that, because if you don't know, Steven Sondheim wrote a movie in the 1970s and he did some film scores here and there. So I'm going to be wow. peppering those in. Uh, throughout the discussions and there's also these weird like one-offs like he would write a song for like a friend or um for like a weird little project that uh isn't in a like a bigger show so i'm trying to think of ways to bring in some of those little oddities here and there as well
1: that's so cool i think it's so fascinating that you can talk for an hour, although I'm assuming way more than an hour since there's probably some editing happening.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah true.
1: About one song. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. I wasn't sure. Like, you, you, even in the uh, early years, early months, really, uh, I was, that was the thing I was the scaredest of was like, oh my gosh, we're going to get to, uh, I don't know, g officer Krupke, and I'm going to only be able to speak about this for like 15 minutes, and I don't know what I'm going to do. (laughs) Luckily, the guests I have on have been great, and we can usually fill a conversation to, at the bare minimum, like 40 minutes, which is a nice podcast length.
2: I have been on the show before. Yes, quite a few
0: times, actually.
2: Yeah. Preparing for your show is really weird to me, almost, um, because I'm so used to looking at a show
0: holistically. What I didn't really internalize a whole lot because the show started with me being super selfish and being, I just want this show to exist. Cause I kept going to the iTunes store and being like, someone just got to have made a songtime podcast by now. <laughs> and no one had. So I finally just said, I'll, I'll do it. But what I didn't really think about was that when you force yourself to be like, we're only talking about this song for this, uh, for this entire episode, I feel like I get a better appreciation for the show as a whole, because you can't just bypass it because like, this is a silly little song that we're not going to talk about. It's like, no, let's sit with this for a bit and be like, oh, okay, this actually does comment on the show broadly. And it's interesting that it's this character. And I wonder why he chose this specific word rather than a similar word. And so you can kind of, yeah, get into the nitty gritty a little bit, but I think, For me, at least, it's given me a better appreciation for lyrics in general, Stephen Sondheim in particular, but just lyrics in general.
1: I'm very into lyrics. Yes. I feel very alone in that. Everyone, I mean, Christine's always like, no one cares about lyrics, Cindy. It's the melody that matters.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, Stephen Sondheim has said that, too, that no one cares about the lyrics. But, um, (laughs) which I think in general is sort of true. People don't necessarily focus on them when they first watch a Broadway show from here Mr. Shepard
3: What did you have to go through
1: we're talking about merely we roll along with a sondheim expert podcaster so this is very exciting (laughs) i understand that christine asked you to come up with a five word summary or really five word review
0: yes she did and i've just remembered that and now i'm going to do this (laughs) off the top of my head
1: it's okay that's how i do it every time
0: i can do it here though i think i think how i would review this. Well, it's a semi-review. Is I would say my new favorite Sondheim show.
2: New, as in how new?
0: I get maybe it's more appropriate to say my latest favorite <laughs> Sondheim show. <laughs> I don't know. If, have either of you actually seen the CD album artwork for the original Broadway cast <laughs> Where of *Marilyn Monroe*? Just a picture of Sondheim's face on it. Just a picture of Sondheim's face on it. What? For years. For years, <laughs> I thought that it that was that was an album that was like Sondheim's greatest hits. I was like, yeah, I don't need that. I I want to like look at all of his shows and stuff. So I kind of bypassed Merrily for a long, long time. Uh, I kind of, sort of had heard about it being like another flop of his. And so when you hear flop, you kind of immediately think, oh, it probably there is it's probably bad or. Now, being like this huge Bernadette Peters stand that I am, she performs a couple of Merrily songs sometimes in her sets, and so I was like, "Oh, I really want to know more about this show that uh, that these came from." And weirdly, the the first Merrily, and probably why I have such a high opinion of it, the first really album that I listened to was the uh, tw- I think it's the 2012 revival, the one with Lin Manuel Miranda mm-hmm. at least. Uh, and then went back to listen to the original Broadway cast with that just really weird album artwork that they've <laughs> decided to use for it. Um, and there's some good stuff there, too. I just think it's uh, one of those things that uh, it's the it's the uh, an exception to the rule where I normally I like the original Broadway cast better than all the other ones. And this is one of the cases where I actually don't. I don't think it's actually a great recording of that show.
2: So my five words, which I just came up with, were I did not appreciate this. And the the keyword there is did because I, I do love it now, um. And I had seen it in L.A. with Wayne Brady playing the role of oh. Charlie, which was
0: oh like interesting.
2: The, the like big draw to it that I knew because my friend was just like, oh hey, I have tickets to the show. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, sure, why not? And I remember just like kind of at the end being like, what was the point? But um, yeah, and. I think I tried to listen to the music for it a bit afterwards, but the the interludes of the merrily we roll Long song just like got to me and I gave up. And then I think it was actually after I started listening to your podcast where one of your guests was talking about it and how great the music was. And then I got back into it and I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this, this really is great.
0: Yeah. I mean, another thing I'll dig at the original Broadway cast. whoever inputted the metadata for that um should be fired, hopefully they were <laughs> because of the i forget like the of the sixteen songs that are on that album, I think nine of them no. At least seven of them are just called "Merrily We Roll Along," <laughs> like oh, the, yeah. like so. So it, it's basically the interludes that go into like actual songs, like Franklin Shepard. And as you may know, there's a movie version of "Merrily We Roll Along" being created currently and mm-hmm. going to be filming over the next 20 years, apparently. Um, I would have to assume they'll probably cut out all of those interstitials because. Uh, I don't see how that would really make sense to do mm-hmm. in a in a movie version. But uh, anyways, yes, I think there's some... I think this show is intentionally hard to get into. And I think there's a reason that it did flop uh, when it originally came. Some that were in its control and some that were completely out of its control. But I think part of it is that this show intentionally... It's it's one of the Sontine things, right? Where it is not a show where you can passively be kind of just watching it and like... have the music overwhelming you kind of really need to be engaged with it and paying attention
1: i have five words
0: yeah i want to hear your five words the
1: show never gets worse
0: oh that's so funny
1: those are good five words (laughs) (laughs) thank you
0: you know the the more i read though about that original production and this is kind of what i was alluding to earlier is that i love how prince Uh, And he's done such such great work. I think he was the wrong person to direct this show. He seemed
2: pretty misguided for this, to be honest.
0: Like, you read some of the things that he did to choreograph this and like set design and costume design it's like well no wonder people were confused about what was going on like he didn't do them any favors and so i think that that's why it was retooled and how ha- why like the updated version is really the one that's performed nowadays and not like the original original version mm-hmm. of merrily we roll along
2: so what i wanted to start with was actually the overture which we don't normally talk about on this show yeah. But um just to bury the lead here, I actually love the Broadway cast album. Like, okay, I think great. that's the one that I listen to the most. Um But what I wanted to say about the overture is... So one of the songs in the original Broadway version that was cut and replaced is Rich and Happy, which got mm-hmm. replaced by that Frank. Right. Um And so they also replaced the section of Rich and Happy in the overture, which... It's honestly disappointing because I feel like they didn't know what to do with that section anymore. And they have kind of this like middling underscore before they get to the end of the overture. And I think they should have just kept Rich and Happy in the overture because there's definitely been other shows where they cut songs but kept the cut songs in the over.
0: Yeah, it's well, it's weird. Yeah. Like Follies is actually a good example of that, just sticking with Sondheim for a bit, where I'm pretty sure like gosh like half of that overture is from songs that don't actually appear in the show (laughs) (laughs) merrily is actually considered one of the best theater overtures too yeah
2: yeah
0: i agree a lot of people have it in like at least their top five of best uh, overtures to open up a show
2: wanted to say now. So there's kind of three-ish versions of this show, which is the original Broadway version that um, I will probably be talking a lot about. And then there's sort of what I will probably refer to as the standard version, which is the 1994 off-Broadway recording. I think the Encores one mostly sticks to it. There might be some minor changes as well as what ended up premiering in the West End and stuff. And that seems to be the one that's licensed and mostly produced now. But then Cindy saw an off-Broadway revival by the Fiasco Theatre Company last
1: year. Also widely hated by the New York Times.
2: <laughs> where they truncated it to one act, removed Ooh. a bunch of the interstitial, um, merrily-re-roll-along transitions, replaced Rich and Happy back into the show, as well
1: as some other book scenes.
0: Yeah, Cindy, how did you like that?
1: It was very, very cool because um, I think there were six or eight people in the cast, and the other number is the amount of people in the orchestra. Pretty much the cast never, ever leaves the stage. So instead of doing the proper transitions, they do still like transition and play music, but they don't like really change the lighting that much or anything. And the three main characters remain on stage. I think they might like hold up signs with the ear on it, which I thought was really cute. Right. And um, Mary basically, you know, in the first scene at Frank's party, she is old and fat. And in this production, she's actually just wearing like 13 layers of clothing. And then every time they go back in time, a couple years, She like twirls around the stage and people just rip a layer of clothes off of her so that by the time they're back on the rooftop, she's a thin, basic bitch. (laughs) But I thought that was really cool. I don't know. The transitions are fine, but they're not like the most important thing in the world to me. I don't know why they talk about the countryside every other (laughs) line when the entire show takes place in New York City. Right. There's just a lot of emphasis on the countryside. <laughs> there really is.
0: I think I like, yeah. I I always liked seeing like those stripped down versions every so often, just to see how you can kind of like reimagine the source material. Um, I I'm, I'm curious then if you're familiar with like at least the two major versions of Merrily that there are. Like, do you miss then the up, in the updated version not having those kind of like bookends of the. Um, Uh, graduation where he's, he's talking years, like years into the future, a university or college graduation. And the kids like, just not understanding like not believing anything that he says all the way back to like his optimism as a student, as a uh, valedictorian talking about it. Does that do anything for you?
1: I feel like I've never seen this scene. Yeah. This was a, a original Broadway scene. I
3: actually
2: think that I do miss the opening scene because I think it transitions into the title song really well when the students are like, how did you get there from here? Because they yeah. want to know how to be rich and famous as well. Um, and that's the only time that the Merrily reroll Roll Along interlude like, makes sense to me. I don't think yeah. they need to, uh, like, like Cindy said, keep singing about the countryside. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and I, I like having the bookend of the ending, but also not ending the show on our time just seems to be a travesty.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I, I'm kind of there with you. <laughs> is that I don't mind the beginning of those bookends. I just really have strong feelings of not liking <laughs> the hills of tomorrow being what actually ends the show. When <sighs> like our time is like, no, that's like your ending. Like that is your ending. <laughs> that's the more tragic way to end this show. I understood the facts at least of anybody when I
3: was your age. I believe all I ever dreamed of back then was to compose music. Dreams don't And I believe you might remember. One more well, you may. Stay me, fulfill me, support me. How does it happen? happen when does it me. How oh. can you get so far off
0: the track? Why don't you turn around? I- I'm curious if you were to actually run the show backwards, would it? S- does it still function as a Broadway show? Like would there still be like an eleven o'clock number? Frank is really our main character, but doesn't really sing. Very uh, quickly. I wonder if it's because he sings quickly if you run this backwards, which is how you would normally run this show. And the sometimes is really playing around with form a whole lot. So
1: I totally think that this show could follow like a standard show format. Like I feel like like it was in Franklin Shepard is very like a little clock number sort of. Yeah. And I actually was thinking of this when I was... Rewatching, I feel like not a day goes by. Reprise sounds like the original, and not a day goes by sounds like the reprise.
0: Yeah, you. I think you're right in that you could play this, quote unquote, straight. Like you could go from the real beginning to the real end. That would actually kind of miss the point of what the show is actually even trying to do, which is the. Uh, the tragedy is seeing someone go from, like, uh, being consumed by his, like, own avarice and, and that sort of thing, all the way to have me, like, this optimistic guy. Oh, yeah, this is just, like, one of those old rich guys who's, like, always been for getting more money. But it's like, no, he actually did start <laughs> uh, as, an, as an optimist. And uh, this is even more tragic because they're so optimistic at the very beginning slash end of the show that it's like, Oh man, like you don't understand where you're going to end <laughs> up. And like, that's the, that's the hardship.
1: I feel like despite all the criticisms of Mary we roll along the book, which honestly, I don't understand. I think it's really cool. It does this backwards thing so much better than betrayal, which is also three friends basically, except Mary and Frank fuck is the only difference. <laughs> <laughs> If they actually get together.
2: Frank Rich <laughs> literally like brought up betrayal in his review where he was like, betrayal works, but this doesn't. <laughs> i was yeah. like and we, we really- saw the like Broadway revival of betrayal this past year and we were just kind of like, what
1: was the point? It made no sense to me because in this show, like I can pretty much see all their views. I feel like Mary kind of gets a short on the stick like I don't get a whole lot of her perspective like she goes from like has a crush best-selling author to drunk but for the most part like none of them are terrible people and betrayal like they just cheat on each other and then speak to each other cryptically <laughs> so there's just no reason to like them when they get to the point where they're young and being happy friends but still cheating on each other Yeah, and I I, like I don't really feel anything for them, whereas in this case I do because you know Kyle, like you said, it's like oh my god, they're so optimistic and they're about to get stomped on so hard, and it's really heartbreaking. There isn't like any mystery. There's no suspense. We know the ending, and we can pretty much guess the beginning because like we understand the point of this, like the purpose of the show by like the second scene. I'm assuming. Yeah. When you take. The suspense out the entire time you're just like oh my god this is gonna be so sad and and I feel like part of why it's sadder backwards is also because like when you're looking at something straight um I feel like part of me is like oh like I don't know the ending of this show it could be really bad but at least like there were good times like this is the good times woohoo um but then this show you're just like oh it's not worth it this is well, so sad yeah,
0: and, like, and, and there's that um, oh my gosh there's a there's a line actually that gets said I forget if it's sung or actually said now in the show which is like the uh, we look back at the good old times that weren't actually good times <laughs> I think there's a whole thing you could write about how this show I think is actually anti-capitalistic <laughs> at, at its heart like I think it has some pretty mm-hmm. negative things to say about capitalism and that sort of thing not to get too <laughs> derailed
3: meet the blob the bodies you read about The ones who know everyone That everyone knows High, dreadful, fabulous Meet the blob Not many and yet all oh, right You never see one What? No They come as a set Who, him? And we're in their debt what do you think? Cause Honey Bunch, they write the books and put on the shows and run the saloons and design the clothes. They keep us natives on our toes. I'll be poor for Kurosawa! They read the books and go to the shows and swamp the saloons wearing all the clothes. What you might call a glut, but they're the most important people and the most important city and the most important country and the you-know-what.
0: The one thing I love about this show, though, is that while, I mean, it deals with Frank's affairs and that sort of thing, Uh unlike that betrayal like you were talking about, it actually doesn't focus a whole lot on romantic relationships. It's really focused on platonic relationships. I think that that's refreshing in a lot of ways, where it's like you... Romantic relationships, of course, are important uh, in our lives, but a lot of times, like, our friends are with us for decades, for years, and we still have to cultivate those, too, and they're just as important as the romantic relationships we have in our lives, and it might be even, in a weird way, more tragic to lose a platonic friendship uh, than it is to lose a romantic relationship, and I just think that's a fascinating concept for them to explore uh, in a show, and uh the meta narrative being how how this basically mirrored Sondheim and Hal Prince's relationship <laughs> while doing this show
1: mm. yeah that that is was pretty tragic
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's a really good point because I feel like plenty of shows already explore like heartbreak, breakup, divorce, whatever, and you know like if that's what happened then the first scene in that frank people would be like i'm so sorry for your divorce but no one cares that he lost his best friends it's just like not something we really right talk about
0: and i and i think that's why like his his relationship with his wife isn't really focused on a whole lot like it um like she, she at least in the updated version she gets like that that song to sing uh but it's it really is like Man, like these thre- these friends were the best of friends at the at the end of the show.
1: You know, I think it's so weird. Actually, the the song "Not a Day Goes By" that Beth sings, mm-hmm. she is such a lovable human. Um, in most of the show, but her very first scene. Sorry, I'm having wine delivered to my hand. <laughs> Thank
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: her very first. Well, how do I scene... get that
0: service? I want wine delivered to my hand. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right um no her, her very first scene is her coming out of a courtroom dressed very like mm-hmm. formally and then she sing screams this number which is such a stark introduction to her character
0: yeah this is actually one of the updates i like too because in the original broadway cast it's not her that sings that song uh i think it's i think it's frank who sings the song mm-hmm. in the original in the original show um, how does but- that
1: work really quick because I can't imagine what he's complaining about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think he's he's upset by the divorce and and like losing his kid and stuff. I think that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the original production. I guess I don't really know. Uh, I think to, to to what you're saying though, again, this is like the the beauty of the show being told in reverse is like, yeah, we our first introduction to that character really is her being seemingly like the cold hearted woman. And yet that isn't actually what's going on. I think in many ways she's in the right in this situation (laughs) to to be so upset by, by him.
3: I keep thinking, when does it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching my life and you won't go away so there's hell to pay
1: do you guys feel me at all that like i feel like mary doesn't really get characterized properly she is
2: not a good character like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's too bad. She's th- she's there for a lot of comedy relief. And uh, I will say Celia Keenan-Bolger, mm-hmm. did I say her name yeah. right? Uh, I think she performs her the best. I think she's really great um, vocally and stuff in that performance. But there's not a lot for that character to do. In a lot of Sondheim shows, I actually find that it's actually like the music that elevates underwritten female characters, which I think is true a lot mm-hmm. of the time in, in his shows. Uh, and it's kind of true here, although she doesn't really get her own song ever in the show.
2: Now you know is kind of her song. Oh, she gets yeah. um Like It Was yeah. is probably That's her yeah, 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 yeah. number. Yeah. Um but the way she's characterized is just I mean, by the end, she's an alcoholic and she's just like hopelessly in love with Frank. And those are kind of her only two
1: characteristics. Yeah, and like I have so many questions about that because the show really just like implies and wants us to think that mary has had a crush on frank for 20 years and because he never likes her back she has ruined her life into becoming an alcoholic spinster which is like yeah like that's what they want us to believe but it just seems so unlikely like she's brilliant right like she has dreams she was part of their trio of dreams she has a best-selling novel like what are the chances that she actually spent 23 years falling in love with a guy and then just becoming an alcoholic
0: yeah i think the subtext is and i agree i don't think it's very well portrayed in the show as a whole i think the subtext is that she is kind of the glue that has held the creative team together and the the Mm -hmm. friendship together and then as her like, alcoholism and, like, infatuation kind of grows and grows and grows. Like, the whole trio kind of, like, falls apart. That had they they actually reciprocated and been better friends to her, that this whole thing would have been uh, better.
2: I definitely see that. But I think it felt to me during um, Old Friends that she almost looked desperate to keep this friendship right. alive. When, And it was, like... She needed the friendship more than either of them needed the friendship. Right, 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 right. And that wasn't really a good look for her, um, both during Old Friends and like it was, because she's the one trying to persuade Charlie to talk to Frank. She's the one that shows up to Frank's um, party in the very
1: beginning. I didn't really get that feeling from Old Friends, which, by the way, has been stuck in my head all day. I thought it was like she is, you know, trying really hard to keep them keep them together because she's not in the business relationship there. So like in the scene right before old friends, Frank and Charlie are fighting over their work stuff. And she's just like, shut up. Let's just be friends. Like I'm not involved in your work stuff. I'm just a friend. I'm trying to go to a club.
2: I think that's a good point in that she's kind of the one who needs to be like, let's put work aside for tonight and let's just be friends.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I
2: never really saw it that way, but that makes sense.
1: Yeah, but I feel like the show wants us to ask questions about her because in the old friend's scene, um, she doesn't drink yet. And I had to like take a second to remember that this isn't because she got signed up for AA, but it's because it's before her alcohol addiction. Um, And she doesn't drink, but then she takes a bottle, which I assume is like the first time she's drank in her life or something. And and then Charlie's like, you have to come to the club. She's not doing that well. She hasn't written anything since her bestseller. No explanation. Like, right. honestly, what I expected instead of that scene ending with um, Frank hooking up with Gussie, which I thought was sort of underwhelming, would be um, Charlie and Mary waiting at the downtown club for him. And he doesn't show. And then she breaks down, talks about her life. And finally, we get some questions answered. Hmm. I think
2: that would be a more interesting scene. Two
3: old friends, fewer won't do. Old friends, gotta have two old friends helping a balance along. One upbraids you for your faults and fancies. One persuades you that the other one's wrong. Most friends fade or they don't make the grade. New ones are quick long as they're new, but us old friends, what's to discuss old friends, here's to us, who's like us, damn few.
2: Also, they really make out Gussie to be a villain in this show. They do. They like do. she has like no real redeeming
1: qualities. I kind of liked her in growing up. I don't know if you guys ever feel this, but I feel like in a lot of shows, movies, TV shows, whatever it is, where there's like a love square kind of thing, for mm-hmm. example. Um in my head, I'm always like, well, if you go with him and you go with him, then three out of four people will be happy and everything will be okay. And then I root for that ending, even though like I'm none of these people. And then, you know, like in this case, I'm like, oh, well, if Frank just went with Mary and then Gussie stayed with her old husband or like whatever, but like something that would mostly work out, you know. But then when she butted into growing up and had her verse in there, I was actually like, oh, well, my solution doesn't work because she would be really sad and I can see this now.
0: I like the idea so, that it's like, you know what? Just looking at this mathematically, 75% of us are happy. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Though it's only fair that you should be aware that I want
3: you up means admitting the things you want the most. Can't pursue every possible line. Folding tents, making choices, ignoring all other voices, including mine.
2: when you get to the act two opener which is um gussie's performance in musical husbands they're like one successful show and you get to like she sings about like oh like he's only a boy but like should i leave my husband for him and you kind of think that this might be like her monologuing but then you hit the point where she starts singing the part from good thing going and that is probably my favorite version of Good Thing Going, which I don't think I'm supposed to like, because I'm I, I think they want you to like the sort of dressed-down version where it's like more earnest. But just okay. something about the way that it like slows down with the trumpets and becomes like this sort of triumphant thing. Like I just think that is the greatest version of Good Thing Going.
0: I, I like that evolution of the song, too. Like, I like the like that show-within-the-show feel. This, this is also the one thing I love about musical theater, when a musical theme gets reprised in a completely different context. Uh, but I think you're right. I think it's, like, the dressed-down version is, like, this beautiful, uh, engrossing thing, and then we hear it in context of the show that they're putting it into, and it's like, oh, this is, like, completely different, especially with the character that's actually singing it, too. Uh, and kind of the the difference between like arts for art's sake and then the commerce of art at the same time i think there's a lot to jump into there
1: also in franklin shepherd inc um like the interviewer are like you guys are the new learner and low and i'm like they wrote one show together and then blew up
0: i have to imagine that that's a dig or like (laughs) that's like an in joke for like musical theater people
2: in opening doors also one of the things when they're like talking about their lives um i forget who says it but they're like i saw my fair lady kind i of actually enjoyed, enjoyed it. it
0: well yeah that's uh, that is actually if you get deep into your sondheim knowledge is actually a, a deep cut because he mentions that specifically i think it's in his first book about he he talks about other composers the ones who've already passed away at least he talks about them <laughs> uh cuz he doesn't want to like start feuds while people are still alive um he says like he's not a big fan of the learner on low team <laughs> but that he actually kind of weirdly enjoys my fair lady even though it's a show that like breaks all the rules of what a good show should be and while it's going along you take for granted
3: some love will wear away we took for granted a lot and still i say it could have kept on growing Instead of just kept on, we had a good thing going, going.
2: back to the um, original Broadway version because they start with rich and happy which is a Frank song and he sings about like look at how great my life is I'm rich and happy like but then the background for that that the chorus sings is like wow his movie was terrible what do you do after a flop like that but he's like no look I'm rich and happy and like it doesn't really notice what they're saying behind his back as opposed to that Frank Which is an ensemble song. And they're talking about how great he is. They're like, that man is like the type of man who could be president. His wife is beautiful. His son is straight. Like, he is the guy that we all want to be. And I think that just really sets up Frank in two different ways. I I think I personally prefer Rich and Happy. um, Along with the opening graduation scene. Because... It is kind of like he's deluding himself into thinking that his life is great. And then with the graduation scene, he's like realized that delusion. But with that Frank, first of all, you don't really hear from him as much. And also it does seem like he is legitimately happy and that he like doesn't really care about the bridges he burned to get there. (laughs)
0: I'm on the fence in that I like the melody of That's Frank better, but I think I agree in saying that that Rich and Happy is a better opener.
3: Skies are beaming, future bright and prospects gleaming. Best of all, I don't stop dreaming just because I'm rich and famous and therefore Thanks.
0: There's actually a version of Franklin Shepard Inc. that I actually love a lot, and it's from the uh, Sondheim, on Shond- Sondheim on Sondheim on <laughs> Sondheim review. I don't know if you're familiar with this show or not, but it was a bu- a few actors and actresses that got. A- got on and um, basically just sang a bunch of Sondheim songs Uh, but it's Ewan Morton um, I think is the guy's name in in that show Mm -hmm. who I think does the best rendition of of Franklin Shepard Inc.
1: Hmm. Why is that?
0: He goes full into it, like, like when he goes like, like he just gets like super into all like the sound effects and stuff like that. And by the end of it, like I just imagine, and I've never seen it done, but I feel like he'd be a sweating mess because it feels like he's just like <laughs> contorting his body the entire time doing everything. Whereas I don't get that sense. And having watched the bootleg of Lin well, he doesn't really get into it very much either. So <laughs> he's just doing some vocal tricks here and there.
1: My favorite version is actually Raúl Esparza's... Mm. Kennedy Center one I don't know if you guys have seen this I haven't seen that one there is only a terrible black and white recording on YouTube even though it's 2002 I was like why why is it black and white but it's black and white um, it's really good. He, he's his acting's really good. You know, like in Lynn's version, he's kind of just like spitting everywhere. Like, yeah. like it, it feels like it's at like the height of his fast talking ability, kind of, even though it probably isn't, but he just always has that like over-eager aura about him. Um Rolls very calm, and and the whole thing is like it's very well acted. Like when he says, Oh, it's my lawyer Jerome, um, like in Lynn's version, he's just like screaming that out like any other sentence but then Raul actually like covers his hand phone um and then whispers it to Yeah yeah. <laughs> well he whispers it to Frank but you know they're switched right now cuz Charlie's pretending to be him but he whispers over and he's like it's my lawyer Jerome and I don't know there's just like a lot of nice touches like that That's I strongly cool. recommend it. It's a great song. Yeah.
0: It is fun. It's it's a good actor piece. I will say too even though I love the 2012 like recording version having watched the bootleg i i don't think it's staged all that interestingly it's a lot of like sitting and standing for for the songs mm-hmm. i feel that like there's a little bit more flourish you could bring I to think the that show itself is
2: symptomatic of some encore productions because yeah. normally they only have like two weeks rehearsal time
0: well, yeah they sold their books and stuff yeah for so there's probably a, a reason for that
2: it like Encores is kind of weird where sometimes they do staged concerts and sometimes they do like full out productions where everyone's off book. So you kind of never really
1: know what you're going to get to do a Sondheim show for Encores is just like insanity. I don't know why anyone would choose to rehearse for a very short period of time to perform two weeks of Sondheim because it must be very difficult to learn. Still the telephones blink and the buzzers buzz And I really
3: don't know what he does But he makes a ton of money And a lot of it for me, right? So I think, okay, and I start a play And he somehow knows, cause right away It's ring! Hiya, buddy, wanna write a show? Got a great idea We'll own all the rights with a two-week out And a turnaround on the guarantee Plus a gross percent of the filling clause And there I am in California Talking deals And turning pink in business, and I mean just that. Back with Franklin Shepard Inc. Very sneaky how it happens. Much more sneaky than you think. Start with nothing but a song to sing. Next, your Franklin Shepard. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a
2: minute. We haven't really talked about opening doors, but I think it's like a fantastic one-song encapsulation of. It's like a when we were making fun of like Ben Brantley talking about how Stephen Sondheim can write like a three act show in one song, yeah. And he chose Barcelona. I think Opening Doors is um, yeah.
0: Barcelona is a better example. <laughs> uh, opening Doors is probably in my top five favorite Sondheim songs like of all time, uh, and it's also a it's a great introduction if people are like, what is what does the Sondheim sounds like. Here's a song that will kind of encapsulate it, uh, and and very and explain so many different things. But it's it's so good, and there's some really funny stuff. I love the, like the singer who's singing out of tune. He's like I can sing higher. <laughs> I just like I just love the way that they deliver that line.
1: When Frank answers the phone with like a different store name every time, is that just supposed to be his part time jobs, or is he being funny?
0: That's interesting. I've always considered it being funny, but maybe it's his job. I actually don't know.
1: Hmm. I was like, maybe he just holds a bunch of sad part-time jobs and Mary, the girl that has a crush on him, just keeps calling <laughs> him at them. Yeah. And then doesn't doesn't Mary say something like, I'm seeing a musician? Or... Yes. Mm-hmm. Is and that the supposed to be Frank away? and he just doesn't know? Oh, I didn't think
2: so.
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't think so either, but Maybe. I guess there could be some other different readings you could make of this. That's the thing. Like, I mean, I think I've said this now, like, for three or four times, but there is a recurring thing I find in a lot of Songtime shows, especially in his later years, where it's like, I literally don't know how you could understand everything that's being sung the first time listening to it even if i was watching the show I'm like i uh, what am i focusing on mm-hmm. type of thing and it rewards a kind of re-listen over and over again to be like oh that's really clever how you have all these people singing different things in unison you get the gist of it of course the the first time but it's like the specifics there is like there's no way that you're going to know what everyone is actually saying
2: mm-hmm. i think that's also why i had so much trouble with merrily we roll along the first time i saw it because i was just like i i don't know like what i'm supposed to be paying attention to who the main character is all of that and i, I think most sondheim shows it they do better if you listen through the score first so you can at yeah. least like kind of understand what you're supposed to focus on
0: i agree i called the producer i set up the one at i started the story. he said to come see him i dropped out of college. I I'm playing, and I'm doing my one act.
3: I'm pulling the red book. I removed the ballad. I finished the story. We started rehearsals. I throw up the story and I'm in the position. I'm holding the popular sign. We're opening doors, singing, look who's here, beginning the sail on a dime. The faraway shore's getting very near. We have an afflicted fear. We have got time.
2: I think the way they split up act one and act two is kind of interesting because act one, you kind of just hate Frank in particular, but there's a lot of people to hate in act one, but then in act two, it's like you love everyone. So it's, um, I don't know if it's too abrupt. I haven't really like, I haven't been able to see the show again since i've like started liking it so i don't know if i would feel that way but i think that was one of the criticisms of how the acts were split and also in the original broadway show i think there was a story where one of the original broadway cast members was like yeah like we could see the exit sign light blinking and i was trying to figure out why i was blinking and i realized it was just all the heads going by as they walked out the door
1: really there were mass
2: walkouts.
1: But I thought people hated the first act. I mean, maybe that's... Well, why yeah, I'm no, I'm saying, like, them. they probably walked out the first act. Ah, uh, I see. And then
2: the second act is when you actually start liking the characters yeah. because they're like,
1: we're going to make it. Right, right. I read that it was because they sort of hired people, um kind of like envisioning that they would sing our time, but not envisioning that they would also grow old. So yeah. the first half of the show, we're just like bright eyed 18 year olds talking about how sad their 40 year old life is. And people were like, we don't buy it.
0: You yeah. Know? I think there, there's a lot <laughs> to, uh, the other big thing, like just to put a fine point on it, how Prince concocted this idea because, uh, the two leads like Charlie and, uh, uh, Frank, Apparently, in the original production, it looked a lot alike back then. So basically, what he decided to do is just dress everyone in the same, basically, uh, shirts and pants, and then have their name printed on their shirts so that people knew who each person was in each scene, uh, which is just wild. But then... um, I think you're right. I think this goes into like how you cast this properly. Do you cast young people to convincingly play young people, and then just put makeup on to have them be old, or do you kind of like split the difference and get like thirty to forty year olds to play it, and then try and have them play young uh, and act younger as you as you like regress the the storyline? Um, and I don't know. I, I kind of go with the second option I think is the better way to do it and like eventually get to uh um oh my god you're a good man charlie brown territory where it's just like adults playing kids mm. but in this case it's adults playing teenagers
2: I think mm-hmm. in the original cast it was all like a lot of them first broadway show ever um the yeah. youngest was 16 the oldest was 25 and oh. and I think casting in the like mid 20s range would be interesting because it's like i guess part of the criticism of the end was like well they don't have enough life experience to be able to understand all the things that these people went through but i feel like even by the time you're like in your mid 20s you do still go through like friendship breakups and you still like have issues and like you know like things like you still have those sorts of experiences but you also still feel like you do have a lot of life ahead of you and that the door of possibility is still open to, like, even if you screw up your life now, there's still hope that you can fix it.
0: Not not I, to be, like, super reductive on it, but I, I feel like to... Uh... I get the sense, and maybe this is just me being super naive, I don't know. But it, like going younger, like focusing on like mid twenties actors would give a sense a m- more sense of optimism, I think, to the show, versus even getting into mid thirties, <laughs> you're all already getting like super jaded people. <laughs> so I think it would affect the show either way.
1: I agree. I would rather err on the older side. Because I feel like when it comes to the second act, the age discrepancy would bother people less because they already know what's going on. Like, Mm -hmm. they understand what's the purpose of that, as opposed to, like, in the first act, they're just like, well, why did we just cast a bunch of young people?
0: By the way, have either of you seen the documentary The Best Worst Thing That Could Have Happened?
1: It
2: was created by Lonnie Price, who played the original Charlie. It's a documentary on that original Broadway production. He interviews a bunch of the original Broadway cast, um, Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim, and a bunch of other people give interviews for it, including Frank Rich, the New York Times um, yeah. critic at the time. And I thought it was actually like wonderfully shot. It's like half documentary, half memoir of the yeah. show.
0: And it basically culminates in them when they did the concert version of all the original actors again because mm-hmm. it it, be, it merely basically became this huge cult classic that people fell in love with but no one actually went and saw um, which I find it hilarious whether you want to believe him or not but there's like this part in that documentary where Mandy Patinkin was like I, I came in and watched a show and thought it was brilliant from day one I'm like <laughs> alright Mandy sure <laughs> yeah.
3: Um,
2: yeah. and I, I think like That is sort of what solidified my opinion that Hal Prince was just truly, truly misguided in this show. Because I think it was not necessarily a terrible idea to cast super young people. Um, But part of it is they had no professional acting experience. They were like, they had only ever acted in like school productions. Um, And then also, they had actual costumes and stuff originally. And then, um, there's a there's a part where Anne Morrison, who played the original Mary, talked about how how Prince went to her and was like, "I'm thinking of just taking out all the costumes and giving you shirts with your names on them. What do you think?" And because he was how Prince, and she was like 20 years old or something, she was like, "Yeah, I mean, like whatever you want to do, like go for it." And um and he did, and like I think everyone now kind of agrees that that was a terrible idea. Yeah. Because it just like reinforced how young they were from the very beginning, which is what Hal Prince kind of wanted to do, which I think was not a good move, because he was like, "Oh, I think it'll like help emphasize the youth," and um, and also Steven Sondheim mentions that what he liked about casting young people was that because they were such good actors, and you can kind of see they are like fairly good actors. People in the audience, what he wanted was people in the audience to forget that they were watching kids perform these songs and these roles, but then, like, every once in a while have a reminder, oh, right, these are kids. And I don't know if that is a good thing to have in the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard. Like, I'm, I'm sure if it, if, like, if it was pulled off, we would all now today be like, of course, that's how you would have to do it. You get to a point in your career where people are afraid to say no to you, and then you just think you're brilliant. <laughs> so you just need that one person to be like um hell no like this is a bad idea (laughs) don't do this
1: well the important thing is now we'll get to see it both ways because of this 20 fucking year long
0: yeah i know filming.
1: it it would be so funny if ben platt and beanie feldstein hated each other when it came out
0: yeah like make it super super meta that's
1: what we're all hoping for (laughs) seems to be just tempting fate (laughs)
0: <laughs> i know yeah like the, the, yeah. the curse of merrily or something like that continues my hope is that they actually have uh, recorded like a sondheim cameo already like because that'd be really nice to see in like 20 years from now um but uh yeah i'm so curious to see how they do it first i just want to know like which version of merrily they're adapting <laughs> like are they doing original original or are they doing like the more uh updated version of it um, or, like, a combination of them. Like, that would be an interesting thing to see with what's going on there. But um, I also have, like, the really pessimistic version of, like, who's going to care about Merrily B. roll along <laughs> and whatever that's going to be, 2040 something. Are they going to set this in, like, th- like through the 60s to 80s um, or the 50s to the 80s? Or are they going to, like, update it into, like, a modern-day context? Uh,
1: but that would be really difficult because I feel like it is – it's – what is it in our time? With Jackie and Jack.
0: Yeah, like. Yeah, that. and then
1: when they sing Our Time, it's, um. what are they watching from the roof?
0: Oh, Sputnik. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, Sputnik. So they have to change all of that.
0: Yeah. So they probably won't do that. <laughs> or maybe they will. Who knows? <laughs> with Bobby
3: and Jackie and Jack, the White House is, is under, under attack. attack. Eight years is the limit, but eight will do. By then, there'll be Bobby and Teddy too. Or Peter or Steven. Or even you. Ooh. And then there's the Colonel, Colonel? Major, Major. you know. Sergeant! Yeah, dozens to take up the slack,
1: if anything goes out of whack. And someday elections will be unknown,
3: cause each of our kids will ascend the throne. And their kids have more kids with kids of their own. It's sort of a family neck. Till so most of the nation's made up of relations Of Bobby and Jackie and Jack And, and Ethel and Ted and, and Eunice and Pat And Joan and Steve and Peter and Jean And Sarge and Joe and Rose and Rose, and Rose and Rose and Rose and Rose and Rose and Rose The decade is starting anew And maybe the country is too
2: also, the other thing that I found amusing was... Um, I mean, the the documentary about Marilyn Roll Along is called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened because in Now You Know, they talk about this was the best thing that ever could have happened. Yes. And in Roadshow, there's a song where they're like, you're the best thing that ever could have happened to me. Yes. So he's just like right. using that line again.
0: It's, uh, by the way, it is a good documentary. It, I feel that is it's very... I, I can't imagine someone who is, like, not into theater or musicals, like, really enjoying it all that much. But for me, it was great.
1: Oh, yeah. I think
2: it really underscored how young the cast was because they were, like, you know, I'm, like, 17, and there was just an open call, and we just showed up. We're, like, we would die to get a chance to work with these people. And, like, just, you know... Like, putting yourself in their shoes, it's, like, pretty crazy to think about that Yeah, they had this chance. And, like, I mean, Sondheim and Hal Prince, they were riding high after, like, yeah. you know, Sweeney Todd and Pacific Overtures and um, Company and Follies and, Lil- like, all of those shows. Yeah,
0: they had gone on a huge run in the 70s. And, like, yeah, this is the thing that just basically broke their relationship where they didn't work again until Roadshow, I think, yeah. is the next one that they...
2: In five yeah. i want to say but
0: yeah like the late like, late 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 into his career although again to to go back to that like the best worst thing that could happen um it is i uh, i would maybe argue that it was a good thing <laughs> for that partnership to end when it did because i feel like it pushed on time to do different types of things like he really went off uh for his like second most like I I don't know, greatest part of his career. Like the 70s are, are probably like Pete time Yeah. And then the 80s are like the second best for me. Uh, like there's some great stuff in there uh, that he got off and went mm-hmm. off and did.
2: Yeah. I feel like after Hal Prince, it was kind of like the James Lapine, um yeah. Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, all of that. And it was actually James Lapine that helped him edit Merrily to the version that we like know now. Right. And he suggested yeah. writing a song, writing growing up and um, doing all those edits. Cause they went to the La Jolla playhouse mm-hmm. and that was where it changed. So I,
0: I do like James Lapine too, a lot because he doesn't, he have a new show that was on Broadway. Oh, uh, over sunset or something yeah, like that, Flying
2: or? over sunset, which, which was supposed don't. to have its first preview the day that Broadway shut
1: down. So right. no one yeah. knows what that looks like still.
0: Yeah, which is Wasn't wild. Wasn't it a like show
1: about know. people dropping acid? Yes. Welcome We can set
3: a few deals and a fucking strictly major release. An exit from one place is an exit to another. Life's the best thing that ever. When it's over with, I'll the connection. You gotta have endings. Or there wouldn't be beginnings. Right? right! When you flatten this low and you start from scratch, you can only go in one direction. The size retired, but there's still a lot of endings. Right! I
2: just uh, just say one more thing about the transition numbers. Like, I get it. Um I think it works better. And again, this is like the hill I'll die on where they need the graduation scene in the beginning. Yeah. And if it turns the transitions into like a memory play, like Frank investigating his life and he like during the transitions is shown to sort of like realize where he went wrong or something. I think part of the transitions that bothers me is because nothing happens.
0: Yeah. I mean like theatrically they're, they're there because they need to do a scene change. <laughs> like that's really <laughs> why they're there. But uh, while you were talking, I just had this uh, a thought again, this maybe someone should just hire me as a theater director, <laughs> but uh, I think it'd be more interesting visually if it's Frank, if Frank is, is our main character. If we make that stand while those things are happening, we should see him basically, I don't know, de-olding himself. I don't know how you would visually show that on stage, but like physically his like clothes would change and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the gray would come out of his hair and just like, go go that route. Yeah.
1: Plus, like, when you start in act one, it doesn't even make any sense. It's like, none of these people are merrily rolling along.
2: <laughs> I think that was part of a review yeah. in the original Broadway thing. It was like, oh, no really? one is merry and the show does not roll along. It clunks. <laughs> but yeah, I think, like, starting on Merrily Reroll Along as your, like, cold open opening number is not a good way to start. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to see any more links to related items, check the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BottomlessBway. Email us at BottomlessBway at gmail.com. And always subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to the show. Thanks again, Kyle, for joining us. Would you like to share anything about how we can find you?
0: Sondheim Podcast on Instagram or, or Twitter.
2: And we will talk to you again next
3: episode. Woo-hoo. Something is stirring, shifting ground, it's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow, hear what's happening, we what's happening. Don't you know we're the movers and we're the shakers, we're the names in tomorrow's papers. Up to us now to show on It's our all-